This is an episode about helping the church be a safe haven, not just for Christians, non-Christians too, (laughs) not just for those with joy, the hurting as well. Churchleadership.com, Lewis Center for Church Leadership, 50 Ways to Increase Worship Attendance by Lewis Center on January 30th, 2019. Vital worship strengthens other areas of ministry by inspiring faith, building community, and connecting people to the congregation's mission. Because worship is at the center of congregational life, strong attendance is more than a number. It is a vital sign. Prepared by Robert Crossman. Uh, Improve the attendance of current members. One, strive to increase the number of times current members are in worship each year. Start with yourself. Two, at least once or twice each year, perhaps in the New Year's resolution season, teach and preach the importance of faithful worship attendance. Three, invite church members to make a written commitment to grow one step toward faithful attendance. Four, include a commitment to faithful worship attendance as part of a holistic annual stewardship commitment. Five, keep a record of attendance and monitor it. Six, know that it is important to respond to absentees before they drop out of active attendance. Once a regular attender misses six consecutive weeks, It is hard to return to the habit of consistent Sunday worship. Seven, form a worship membership care team to review attendance within 24 hours of each service. Eight, send a handwritten note signed by the membership care team, not the pastor, to anyone who has missed three Sundays in a row. Say, looking through the attendance slips, we've missed your name. Hope to see next Sunday. In a smaller church, the wording can be more personal. 9. Ask a personal friend, a choir mate, Sunday school class member, or someone who sits in the same pew to telephone people who have missed four Sundays in a row. Hi, John. We noticed that Fred has missed church the last four Sundays. Can you telephone him this evening? 10. Maintain a loving, invitational work relationship with those who have been absent for five or more Sundays. Never be judgmental. 11. Know that it is often very difficult to return to worship after the death of a loved one. Form a grief support team to send handwritten notes monthly until the family has returned to regular Sunday attendance. 12. Telephone every household in the church and everyone who has ever visited to invite them to some special event four times a year. Say, hi, we are calling everyone related to First Church this week. Reminding everyone that this Sunday, the choir is singing the Messiah. I hope you will be there. Invite new people to attend worship. Number 13, decide today to open your minds, hearts, and doors to new faces. Even if it means changing your music, sermon content, Sunday school, and enlarging your personal circle of Christian friends. 14, pray for the unchurched in your community. Pray for children being raised outside the church, couples and marriages that don't have Christ at their center, etc. But pray also for specific families and individuals, friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, by name every day. Okay, what does that mean? When I say pray, 
because that could come off condescending. So let me quickly, quickly correct that. Pray for blessings to gently approach their lives. Pray for kindness. Now, when I'm when I say pray for, I'm not saying these things aren't already there. I'm saying pray more blessings in their life. Pray for more kindness in their life. Pray for more breakthroughs in their life. Pray for more uh, awards and rewards in their life. And I'm not saying pray for those things just so they could become Christian and those things stop. Or just pray for those things as long as they're Christian. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying pray for goodwill to happen to them. When I say them, not us versus them. Okay? There's a distinction. And don't just pray for them. Build relationships with them. Build a relationship where it's okay to explore lovingly taboo subjects, sensitive subjects, hard subjects, uh, rough truths, and difficult conversations. And make sure that there is a proper support team for them. Meaning people who have what it takes and are qualified to help them. In terms of abuse, addiction, dysfunctional family, um, a broken household, anything. And I'm not saying these things happen to people because they're unchurched. No, no, no. These things happen to believers and non-believers, okay? And I'm being very careful with my language. I'm just saying building relationships means that regardless of what people believe and don't believe, just be the kind of person that only wants good to happen to them. And don't think that good won't happen to them because they're unbelievers and non-believers, okay? And when you evangelize, this is something I learned in church, something positive I learned in church. Begin with prayer. Don't psychoanalyze. Listen. Listen to them. Share meals with them. Offer to pay when you share meals with them. Serve the needs that you can serve that they need you to serve. And share your testimony of of what it's like to be a meat Christian, a solid food Christian, a mature Christian, true Christianity. Share those stories. That way, even if they choose to believe or still choose to not believe, you are a Christian that they feel safe with. That's the goal is regardless of their views, they like church when it comes to you. 
They like Christianity who comes to you. They think highly of Jesus pertaining to you. That is all you can ask for. Okay. But pray also for specific families and individuals, friends, relatives, associates, neighbors, by name every day. 15. Know that personal invitations are the most effective method of increasing worship attendance. Invest 60 seconds once a week to invite someone to attend church, to attend worship with you. 16. Continue to invite a person every two months, even if they decline your invitations. Those invited may eventually come to a season of life when they are receptive to attending worship. Regular invitations are more likely to have to overlap one of these seasons. Well, if they don't want to come, then I don't think that it's wise to continuously to um, invite them. But some people you can do that, and that's just fine. Other people, that's clearly a boundary violation. So. It's like this example I keep using, throwing out seed. It'll catch and plant for some and won't catch and plant for others. But that doesn't mean don't be kind. It just means that people have diverse thoughts on church invitation, house of worship invitation. As long as you are kind to them, even if you stop inviting them, but you're always open to them, they may come around. Even if they don't, at least you're having church with them, you and that person. Sometimes church can be just two people. Food for thought. 17. Recycle your worship bulletins. Keep Sunday's bulletins in your car or on your desk if they have given it to someone along with your personal invitation for them to join you in worship. 18. At least once a year, perhaps in the pre-Christmas season, preach and teach the importance of becoming and inviting people. Invite the congregation to make a written commitment to grow one step toward faithful inviting and witnessing. 19. Distribute to members simple printed invitations during the Christmas and Easter seasons that they can give to family and friends. Print at the top of the card if you're not active in a church, worship with us this season. 20. Have a Bring a Friend Day or FRAN, F-R-A-N, acronym day. A church-wide effort to bring a friend, relative, associate, or neighbor. Select a Sunday when something special is happening, such as homecoming, the start of vacation Bible school, or Christmas Eve, and prepare as you would for company coming. 21. Know that the people who are on the fringe of your church are your future, your prospect list, and your next potential generation of deeply devoted disciples. Avoid the tendency to denigrate or alienate those who are not yet fully committed disciples. And avoid the tendency to denigrate or alienate those who are non-Christian. Thirdly, avoid the tendency to denigrate or, or alienate those who are considered societable untouchables. Hmm... 22, find ways continually to invite these near the edges of your church, especially those who have already have a positive impression of the church, such as those who have come to the church for a wedding, a funeral, or to vote, and those who already worship a couple of times a year. Do not drop them from the newsletter or membership list. 23, distribute door hangers and target neighborhoods near your church. 
It is more effective to cover the same 500 doors six times than to do 3,000 doors one time. 24. Send mass mailers to targeted postal routes near your church six to eight times a year. The back-to-school season, pre-Christmas, and pre-Easter times are logical for these mailings. I want to quick go back to the door hangers. As long as it's, it's permissible with your neighbors, because you got to think, permission neighbors go hand in hand. 25. Have a website. Increasingly, people use the internet and Google the same way our grandparents use the yellow pages. The web presence can be very simple. A single page with a map, worship time, simple welcoming invitation, and contact information. Make your church visible and attractive. 26. Purchase permanent road sign directional signs to point the way to your building. If your building is not on the main highway, install a prominent sign on the highway. 27. Purchase temporary yard signs to put out for a few days and then remove. They catch the eye and are relatively inexpensive. They should be very simple with little wording such as Worship 10 a.m. Sunday, you're invited. Easter Sunday, 11 a.m., you're invited. 28. Don't hide your cars. There's a, if there's parking in front of the building, use it. Cars in the parking lot lets the community know that something important is happening at your church. 29. Make a good first impression through the appearance of your building and landscaping. A well-cared-for exterior lets guests know that you are expecting company. 30. Clearly indicate the main entry to your building so that worship guests can find it easily. 31. Reserve the best parking spaces for guests. This pastor, staff, and church officer should park on the edge of the parking lot, leaving the best spaces for others. 32. Make the nursery the nicest room in the church to attract and keep families with young children. It should be clean and well-equipped in an easy-to-find location close to the worship space and staff with adults. As your church grows, you will need pagers, check-in and check-out procedures, and nursery staff wearing uniforms with their photo ID. 33. Have clean, neat Sunday school rooms for children. The Sunday school program should be well-staffed and well-resourced. Welcome worship guests warmly. 34. Greet guests when they first arrive in the parking lot. Give a couple of people orange vests and have them wave and smile as cars pull in. On rainy days, they can escort people to the door under a church umbrella. If the lot is large, they can drive folks to the door in golf, in golf carts. 35. Greet guests as they arrive at the door saying, Good to see you. Glad you are here. Do not ask for their names as many guests are cautious and prefer anonymity. The larger the church, the more this is true. 36. Clearly mark the restrooms, nursery, and worship. Clearly mark the restrooms, nursery, and worship rooms. In a large building with a complicated layout, have greeters stand at the intersection of hallways, ready to escort guests who are unsure about finding their way. 37. Find a way to acknowledge and welcome guests in worship without singling them out or embarrassing them. In many communities, guests prefer to be anonymous, so don't ask them to stand and introduce themselves. 38. Have an easy and readily available method for worship guests who wish to give you their name and contact information. 39. Practice the circle of 10. Encourage church leaders to personally greet everyone, member or guest, who may sit within 10 feet of them on Sunday. 
Forty, know that guests typically leave the building within three minutes after the service. Encourage church leaders to follow the rule of three, devoting the first three minutes after the benediction to speaking with people they don't know before speaking to family and friends. Forty-one, have greeters at all the exits, smiling, shaking hands, and simply saying to members and guests as they leave, Glad you were here. I hope to see you next Sunday. Forty-two, start a first friends ministry as a way to reach a new age, racial, or cultural group. Train a pool of people from from a variety of ages and stages of life to watch for first-time guests. Sit by them, treat them to lunch, and telephone them the next Saturday, inviting them to Sunday worship. Make worship accessible to newcomers. 43. Make your worship bulletin or screens visitor-friendly. Include the actual words or at least the page numbers for any songs or responses commonly known to members but not newcomers. 44. Preach sermons that don't assume familiarity with the inner workings of the church or a high level of previous biblical knowledge. 45. Present all musical offerings well and in a style most likely to appeal to worship guests. 46. Consider adding an additional worship service to reach new people who prefer a different time or to reach new people who prefer a different style of worship and music. 47. Start a new church or a second worship site at a different location as a way of increasing attendance. Follow up with visitors. 48. Develop a systematic plan for following up with visitors after their first, second, and third visits. 49. One model some use includes 1. Follow up with first-time visitors with a doorstep visit before 3 p.m. that same Sunday. A letter or telephone call from the pastor within two days. And placement on the newsletter email list. 2. Follow up with second-time visitors with telephone call within 36 hours from someone related to the visitor's interest or needs. For example, a youth minister or a Sunday school teacher or choir director. And 3. Follow up with persons who visit a third time with a telephone call to request a home visit. 50. Invite newcomers who have visited in recent months to an informal coffee with the past or other social gathering that includes fellowship and information. Dr. Robert Crossman is Minister of New Church Starts and Congregational Advancement for the Arkansas Conference of the United Methodist Church. It was used by permission. Um, okay, 10 leadership lessons from Nehemiah. Examining the biblical account of Nehemiah building the walls of Jerusalem, Lavette H. Weems Jr. sees a compelling example of how a leader should function. Nehemiah defined the reality of the situation, named a vision, and engaged the people to accomplish it. This is by Lovette H. Weems Jr. on April 17, 2019. The prophet Nehemiah provides modern-day leaders a wonderful model of leadership. Upon learning of the distress of his people, Nehemiah receives permission from the king he was serving to go help them. Despite obstacles and opposition, he discerns a challenging vision and leads the people in accomplishing it. While Nehemiah was the leader who first articulated the vision, the people confirmed the vision and committed themselves to the task. The gifts of all were required to achieve the vision. Accomplishing the vision was not easy. Divisions and hard feelings combined with outside opposition made faithfulness very difficult. Yet Nehemiah and the people preserved faithfully, though not perfectly, 
Below are some lessons we might learn from Nehemiah's leadership example. Again, Nehemiah is always asking God to provide a vision for him. He understood that a true vision must come from God. It must be a God-inspired and God-revealed vision. Only such a vision is worthy of leadership. Leaders do, leaders do not need answers. Leaders must have the right questions. When a new challenge arises, our tendency is often to begin with the question, what should we do? If you already knew what to do, chances are someone would have done it already. The first task may be to learn more before doing anything. To gain that knowledge, you might, you might ask questions such as these. With whom do we need to talk? Who else is facing this challenge? Who has experience, who has experience in what we are facing? What internal and external information do we need to gather? Want more right questions? Read right questions for church leaders. One, God's leader responds to a call. God has always called leaders. Leaders must hear God's calling to lead and respond to that call. Nehemiah understands his leadership as a calling from God. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 12 verse, Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 12. Nehemiah listening came to see the need, chapter 1 verses 1 through 4. Two, God's leader cares for the people in their situation. Nehemiah listened to the voice of the people. He showed care for their situation. Nehemiah identified with the people. He thought in terms of we and us. Chapter 2, verse 17 and 20. He came to understand and identify with the trouble we are in. Chapter 2, verse 17. Three, God's leader helps define the reality of the situation. When Nehemiah said, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, he was not describing his personal agenda, but assessing the common situation faced by all the people. Unless the reality can be described honestly, progress is impossible. Nothing is more limiting to a group, says Peter Singe, than the inability to talk about the truth. Four, God's direction and vision are sought by the leader and people. Nehemiah was always asking God to provide a vision for him. He understood that a true vision must come from God. It must be a God-inspired and God-revealed vision. Only such a vision is worthy of leadership. The vision must be what God has put into my heart, chapter 2, verse 12. The vision emerged in the midst of a devastating situation. It would have been easier to give up in despair, but God's leader always seeks God's vision, even in difficult times. 5. Prayer is essential to know God's will. Prayer is the fundamental act for people of God. God's leaders and God's people must be in the right place to hear God's voice. God can speak to us at any time, but if we are not turning our hearts toward God to seek God's guidance, it's more difficult for God's vision to reach our hearts. The prophet Habakkuk climbed into the tower believing that God had a vision for him and his people. Habakkuk was willing to wait for the vision, but knew that he needed to put himself in a position to receive it. Six, God's vision is simple. God's vision tends to be very simple. People build complicated systems, but God's will is often extremely simple. For Nehemiah and his people, that vision was captured in three words, rebuild the wall. There were many needs, hopes, and dreams of the people, but God's vision for the immediate future was captured in rebuilding the wall. Without this vision, the other needs could not be met. Seven, God's leader built a team. Nehemiah gained the trust of the people. This permitted him to build a team that could make the vision happen. People shared responsibility to accomplish the goal. No one person, not even Nehemiah, could accomplish his vision alone. Nehemiah began with a few, then he expanded the team to include virtually everyone. The people committed themselves to the common good, chapter 2, verse 18. The talents of the people were named and used, chapter 3. 
Different people worked on different sections of the wall. People were assigned to work closest to their homes. But even God's people gets tired. They felt the task was taking too much and was too difficult. They were There were internal disputes. Someone has said everything looks like failure in the middle. But Nehemiah was able to find ways to alleviate their concerns without losing the vision. 8. God's leader keeps the real purpose before the people. It is easy for people to forget the purpose behind the vision even as they work to fulfill it. The vision was to rebuild the wall, but the wall was not the important part of the vision. The wall was a means to a larger purpose. What Nehemiah and his people really were really about was reclaiming their identity as people of faith. What was at stake was not just a wall, but indeed their very faith. Chapter 8 verse uh, and chapter 12. Chapter 8, chapter 12 verse 27. Okay. Nehemiah had to make sure the people... Oh, it's chapter 8 and chapter 12, but verse 27. All right. Nehemiah had to make sure the people were reminded of their ancient faith. Because their task was tied to a larger purpose, they put their hearts into their work and were able to complete the task in 52 days. Chapter 6, verse 15 through 16. What an amazing feat that was. 9. God's leader is not discouraged by adversity. As they rebuilt the wall, they were ridiculed and mocked. Their enemies did everything possible to discourage them. They threatened to tell untrue stories about Nehemiah. Nehemiah listened but persisted. Nehemiah knew he was doing a great work, chapter 6, verse 3, and could not come down from the wall to debate with the enemies. Nehemiah persisted even when adversity came. God's people cannot give up when adversity comes. Lastly, 10. When people work so hard to accomplish a great goal, the the temptation is to want to stop and rest. God's people should stop and celebrate victories just as Nehemiah and his people did, but God is never finished with us. After we give thanks to God for bringing us to a new place on our journey, then we must turn again to God in prayer, asking, What now is your will for us? It is time for revisioning. We are always on a journey with God. We rest for a brief time, but we do not stop. We keep seeking the new land that God is calling us to reach. God always has something else for us to do. We cannot become what God wants us to be by remaining what we are. Okay. Um, see how well I am on time. Okay, I'll just share these important things. Trauma experts share how to care for and support sexual abuse survivors on categorized February 12, 2019, LifewayResearch.com by Jamie Atten. A recent Houston Chronicle investigative report discovered more than 700 survivors who experienced sexual abuse by pastors and other leaders at Southern Baptist Church over several decades. Perhaps you know someone direct perhaps you know someone directly affected by sexual abuse mentioned in that story. Far more likely you know someone who has been deeply impacted by sexual abuse not connected to this current report, but who, after hearing about it, had feelings of trauma and hurt triggered. Having studied trauma over the last 15 years around the globe, I found very few people know how to provide care or support in these situations. That's why I've asked four leading trauma experts to share their insights for helping sexual abuse survivors. Below are some ways to help according to these Christian mental health professionals. Diane Langberg, PhD, practicing psychologist and international speaker working with trauma survivors. Diane Langberg, PhD and associates. For those of you who would walk with survivors of sexual abuse, listen. 
Trauma and abuse mean living with the recurrent, tormenting memories of atrocities witnessed or born. Memories that infect victims to sleep with horrific nightmares, destroy their relationships, their capacity to work or study, torment their emotions, shatter their faith, and mutilate hope. Trauma is unusual, you see, not because it rarely happens, but because it swallows up and destroys normal human ways of living. If you would walk alongside those who have been abused and in silence by the Church of Jesus Christ, you must learn to listen and not instruct, but rather enter in. You must learn to bend, to weep with, and be a comforting presence. It is the work of Christ to do these things. Such work will encourage victims. Such work will change us. Speak speak little. Speak little. Listen well. Listen well. Incarnate the wounded Savior. Know his blessing through you and on you. Tammy Schultz, PhD, clinical training coordinator, clinical training coordinator and professor of counseling, Wheaton College. To members of the faith community, as survivors of sexual abuse who represent God, examples are pastor, elder youth pastor, share their fright of anguish, they need advocates who will not sweep their stories of abuse under the proverbial carpet. Survivors need churches that are dedicated to repairing the institutional cultures that enabled violations to initially occur. They long for church leaders who will obliterate language from their vocabulary, such as moral indiscretions, misunderstandings, mixed signals, or sexual incidents, rather than acknowledging these experiences as the dehumanizing violations and often crimes that they were and are. Far from being inconsequential, minimizing verbiage serves to hurl additional hurt. When survivors of sexual violence choose to share their stories of sexual violence, it is important that church members refrain from theological treatises explaining why the abuse occurred. Even when survivors voice questions like, why did God allow this to happen? There are sometimes deeper spiritual questions lying below the surface like, God did it, do I? matter to you and god do you care how much this hurt me and to these questions survivors need space to lament over the grievous harm done to them they need representatives of god who will say i am so sorry and this was wrong and they need advocates in the church who will be steadfast in their efforts to hold perpetrators wielding power and influence accountable and they need advocates in the church who will be steadfast in their efforts to hold perpetrators accountable Survivors need churches that are dedicated to repairing the institutional cultures that enabled violations to initially occur. Jenny Huang, MA, Managing Director, Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College. When it comes to abuse survivors, creating a safe space for their stories is the first priority. Of course, taking into consideration that medical needs have been met. A safe space means offering to listen without judgment and instead listen with empathy. Confidentiality, most importantly, letting survivors choose what they do with their stories and honoring their decision. Organizations and institutions that represent places of healing, examples, hospitals, churches, should receive training on basic trauma care and abuse in which they can learn to identify signs of abuse and handle situations in a way that doesn't perpetuate harm, including um, reporting abuse. It is also crucial that we treat abuse survivors as more than just their abuse. We don't want to minimize the ways in which the abuse affected them, but we should remember the abuse does not define who the survivors are and will be. Avoid unintentionally creating stigma and labels. I wouldn't say their abuse. I would just say the abuse. 
because we don't want to confuse survivors for victimizers. And they're and sex and sex crimes are crimes all the time. Not often, all the time. All right, Heather David Yuck Gingrich, PhD, professor of college, Denver Seminary. When survivors finally gather enough courage to talk about their abuse, one of the worst things that can happen is that they are directly or indirectly blamed for their own abuse or are accused of lying. Survivors need to be heard and understood, not just once, but over the long haul. They need Christians who are willing to walk beside them in their process of healing, however long that takes. I dare say a lifetime, because as a rape victim myself, Many could benefit from counseling and may need financial help to pay for it. Individuals or churches could help by funding counseling for survivors. When individuals have been harmed by church leaders, the response of other church leaders is crucial. Survivors need other church leaders to stand up for them and other survivors. They need church leaders to say what happened to you is not okay and never okay. And we're going to do everything in our power to help keep it from happening to someone else and then to actually follow through and advocate for change positive change, by the way. Survivors' relationships with God are inevitably damaged, particularly when an early representative of God is the perpetrator. When congregations are better trauma-informed, their leaders and congregants will be better able to allow survivors to wrestle with hard questions such as, why did God not protect me? And why was I the one who was victimized without offering simplistic, over-spiritualized answers that might only drive them farther from God? Jamie Eaton, Dr. At Dr. Jamie Eaton, A-T-E-N, Atten, sorry, is the founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute and Blancart Chair of Humanitarian Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. He's the co-author of Disaster Ministry Handbook and author of A Walking Disaster, What Katrina and Cancer Taught Me About Faith and Resilience. Some people are unable to have a relationship with God and some people are, are unable to be a faith, religion, spirituality because of the abuse that happened to them. That's not true for every person who's non-religious. That's not every. That's not true for every person who's irreligious. But for some people, because of that, that is why. So do not judge the concept of life and afterlife when it comes to them. Just know that God's grace extends to um, survivors and survivors who aren't able to practice any piety of any kind. Remember, God's grace is so sufficient, they'll have a spot in heaven with the Lord. As a Christian, that's how you're supposed to feel. Okay. Um, I, you know, five healthy ways to run your church like a business, September 4, 2019 by Tom Rainer. One of the most common things I hear is you can't run your church like a business. I get it. Our goal is to glorify God, make disciples, be faithful to what the Bible is called God's word by many, not to make profits and not to adopt, um, non-biblical principles. I'll just say that. When someone insists we not run the church like a business, I understand their heart and intent. But there are indeed some business principles that correlate with church practices and biblical truth. To say we don't run our church like a business, carte blanche, carte 
Carte Blanche may be a signal that we are ignoring sound and at least indirectly biblical counsel. Here are five examples. One, healthy businesses are determined to spend wisely, so should churches. Sound business practices require a company to have systems in place to evaluate expenditures constantly. Frankly, I've seen many businesses that understand better why they spend funds than churches do. Too many churches just do the things the way they've always done it. Two, healthy businesses have clear financial accountability, so should churches. Good business practices include clear and and demonstrable accountability to owners and slash stockholders, as well as the internal revenue service. Churches would do well to emulate some of these practices. Three, healthy healthy businesses make tough personnel decisions, so should churches. Jim Collins in his classic book, Good to Great, uses the bus metaphor to describe personnel decisions of healthy businesses. He says they have to get the right people on the bus and in the right seats on the bus. Too many churches allow for poor and postponed decisions about personnel. To use another metaphor, they kick the can, hoping things will get better. They usually get worse. For healthy businesses plan for the future, so should churches. Many churches follow the same calendar and plans they have been using for years. The leaders and members often act like it's 2005 or 1998 or 1975. Healthy businesses plan for the future and allocate their resources accordingly. While neither businesses nor churches have a perfect knowledge of the future, it only makes good stewardship sense to plan with the knowledge you have. Five, healthy businesses are constantly trying to understand their audience and social churches. A business will not stay in business a business will not stay in business unless it understands clearly its market and customers. While churches don't have customers and markets as businesses do, they are commanded to go and make disciples in the community and in the world. It is hard to know where to go, when to go, and how to go unless we have at least a basic missional knowledge of our community. For certain, there are both healthy and unhealthy businesses, healthy and unhealthy churches, and churches should not emulate businesses completely. To stay, to say categorically a church should not run like a business at all can be both unwise and a poor practice of biblical stewardship. Tom S. Rayner is the founder and CEO of Church Answers, an online community and resource, and resource for church leaders. Prior to funding Church Answers, Rayner served as president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources. He is the author of more than two dozen books, including I Am a Church Member, Breakout Churches, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, Simple Life, Simple Church, Raising Dad to Millennials, Essential Church, and Who Moved My Pulpit. Rand and his wife, Nellie Joe have three grown sons, Sam, Art, and Jess, who are married and have 10 grandchildren. And I think churches should have commerce, for example, buy apartment buildings and buy abandoned buildings and turn them into social justice centers, community centers, and community-oriented, community-organizing, community-building grassroots centers that are about the fortifying of the world around them in holy ways. As a church, that's how you're supposed to think. So commerce and church can get along as long as Jesus gives the thumbs up, go for it. So don't be afraid of business. Make sure that your business is Jesus's and that's it. That simple, that plain. All right. So I say that because you can't rely on offerings forever. You know, especially during pandemic times, expecting offering 
Nah, it's just not going to happen. So, it may not happen as much. Some people have money, and a lot of people do not right now. And I, and I say that out of kindness. So, that's something to keep in mind. Because if you make... Okay, there's some businesses that you can make deals with that you still get your money for Jesus and use the money in ways that only please Jesus then your deals with these businesses are fine as long as the as long as your business practices are ethical and as long as their business practices are ethical that's what I mean. Churches and commerce can have a holiness relationship, a holiness partnership. Okay. So this will be the last one. Um, Urban Churches and Gentrification, September 6, 2019. Thomas Terry, Joshua Ryan Butler. Thomas Terry and Joshua Ryan Butler share their experiences pastoring and gentrifying Cities and suggest several methods for ensuring that churches engage well with existing communities and churches. The following is a lightly edited transcript. Please check video before quoting. This is the gospelcoalition.org. Thomas Terry, I think if we as Christians are desiring to engage our cities, then we can't help but think about the realities of gentrification. I think a lot of people kind of disconnect gentrification and think, oh, that's just an economic issue. It really doesn't have any bearing on the church. You know, it's just the way the world is. You know, people come in, they buy things, they buy a property. That's just the way life is. But I think we have to look at it from a pastoral perspective and see how it impacts localized communities when where all they've known, especially in cities where you have community churches that have been in existence for 20, 30 years. And that's all these people know. Gentrification as a way of coming in and dismantling people's whole paradigm, their whole way of thinking about church and community. And that actually does a disservice to engage in the culture, the city that we live in with the message of the gospel. How can they trust that we care for these people's souls when we care nothing about their buildings, nothing about their homes, nothing about their neighborhoods? We somehow disconnect their social issues from the gospel, and that really impedes a healthy gospel witness. So one of the things my church did when we were looking for a church building was that we identified particular areas in Portland that we decided were completely off limits just because they were heightened gentrification areas and we did not want to ruin our gospel reputation by coming into a neighborhood and bringing in all these people who are not a part of the neighborhood. That would do no good. When we think about engaging our communities with the gospel, we think about the people in our immediate two, three mile radius. How could we, with a clear conscience, engage these people after we just stripped away their congregation, their houses, their neighborhoods, their barbershops? To me, it seems unchristian to go into a neighborhood, dismantle their neighborhood, and then plant a Christian flag and say, now let's do the work of ministry. What would be better is to be the church that goes into these neighborhoods and help empower these folks who are struggling. Give them resources to maintain their communities, to help them thrive in this community so that they can do the heavy lifting of evangelism in their own context. I think we, in many ways, we have like the white savior complex that says, well, 
we would be more effective if we came into their neighborhoods and we established all these churches. Well, maybe that's not the most effective way to do ministry. Maybe the best way is to empower these local churches who've been in these neighborhoods forever, who have strong relationships, 20, 30 years, 50 years in some cases. Help them to sustain their neighborhood churches and their buildings for the sake of the gospel. We only think of the gospel in this just very word-based didactic way. Well, just preach Jesus. And yes, that's a facet of it. But what if we came and empowered localized communities to preach the gospel to their people? It would be much more dynamic and helpful, I think, in my opinion. Joshua Butler. I helped pastor a church for about 15 years. Back in the year 2000, we were part of a church planting movement focusing on cities in cities where there might be low gospel presence. So I was in Portland, Oregon, saw a lot, going to do a lot of amazing things. And I think about that first decade, God was moving in some really powerful ways. But in retrospect, I would say I was naive. I think many of us, we were naive to the processes and realities of gentrification that were occurring all around us that we were a part of. We were embedded in this return of people desiring to live in cities and move. These were people who tended to be more affluent, raising up home prices and rental prices and retail space prices and all that. I was ignorant at the time, but still am learning that Portland has a horrible history of racism, particularly toward the African-American community. And just some of the realities that the African-American community in Portland has experienced historically were just heartbreaking to learn more about. And then to realize in retrospect that we were a part of bigger processes in our city that were economically pushing many African-American families from those historic neighborhoods, homes, and the culture that was embedded within those neighborhoods because of the community that was there. This was forcing African-American displacement and relocation to some distant and difficult areas way further out from the urban core in Portland. And one of the things I found most helpful in that process over the years, though, has really been reclaiming a more significant value of diversity in the body of Christ. For some churches like ours, it was a move towards multi-ethnic diversity within our church body from leadership all the way down. I think for some churches, that may mean building relationship with other churches in the city that might be more ethnic churches of different minority populations or other populations in the city. The strongest prophetic challenge I encountered was through building relationship with the broader body of Christ in our city. And through those relationships, I began to see the dynamics. I don't know any quick one size fits all solution or answer to the problems there. The reality is if we hadn't planted, gentrification still would have been happening. But because of those relationships now, we've been able to partner with some historic African-American churches and other churches that have had a vision for church planting out in areas where many of their people have been displaced and there's been a partnership with church planting and ministry and being more sensitive to the dynamics that we might unknowingly be participating in as churches ourselves. Thomas Terry is the founder and proprietor of Humble Beast, a record label ministry in Portland, Oregon. As a spoken word artist and a member of Beautiful Eulogy, he seeks to bring creativity and theology together to glorify the Lord who created them both. Thomas lives with his wife, Heather, and two boys, Tobin and Cooper, and serves as an elder at Tobin and Kuiper, and serves as an elder at Trinity Church Portland. You can follow him on Twitter, find his words and music at www.humblebeast.com. Joshua Ryan Butler is a pastor at Redemption Church in Temp, Arizona, and author of The Skeletons in God's Closet and The Pursuing God.
So, I'm glad I do episodes like this because I want it to be understood that I'm not somebody who complains about the church and that's it. it. No, I do see a lot of the inner beauty and outer beauty that church can bring in terms of, when I say inner beauty, of course, integrity. When I say outer beauty, I'm talking about that outward demonstration of Jesus's gentleness. And so I, I want to have the church stay. I want let I believe in keeping the church, having the church stay. I I believe in church reformation. I never believe in church abolishment. I always believe in church um, correction because I love the church. I have a agape love for the church. So. The church should stay around forever. And besides, church people are people. They're humans, so their human rights should never be stripped from them.